This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. Tonight, the crickets are just, they're just going crazy. They feel like you can feel their happiness at the reprieve, you know, singing their warmth. Ah, maybe they know it's um, short-lived, but their singing tonight is amazing. And uh, it's a great accompaniment, although we can't really hear it in here, to the talk I want to give that I mentioned I would give um, called the eight steps to happiness but it's really a talk <laughs> i know you've taken so many steps toward happiness <laughs> this talk should be a relief right it's only eight um think of all the steps you've <laughs> back and forth and back and forth and up and down the hill and yeah um you know towards the i mean the buddha wandered all over the place teaching um you know, he wandered in all these parts of northern India. Um, and wherever he wandered, he said, you know, this is the teaching that I offer to you. And it was really this teaching, which is the teaching of these three foundations, pillars of our practice um, that he called sila, samadhi, and prajna. And the eightfold path is... It, the interlocking, the way the teachings interweave and interlock is brilliant intellectually. And it also expresses the way, you know, we tease them out and give a linear teaching like the Four Noble Truths, of which this is the fourth one. Um, but things don't happen that way. I don't have to tell you, you've been with your own mind now for so long in this retreat. Uh, they happen in a much more connected and um, non-linear way. But to speak, we give them in this linear way. And these eight steps, um, there's really no other teaching of the Buddhas that is more profound and more central to his message. In fact, this is his teaching. because, And it's the perfect teaching for right now in retreat because you're right on the cusp 
of about to end, you know, about to have the last full day, and and yet still in the depth and stillness of the retreat, even though the mind may be tipping forward and to anticipation. And and the reason it's the perfect teaching, I think, for this time of retreat is that it's a teaching about it's both the expression of awakened life and uh, the fulfillment of that life. So it's a way for you to, you can look at it through the lens of meditation and contemplative practice, and you can also use it as a framework for how to practice at home and the different areas that if we attend to them, there's absolutely no, um, it's inevitable that we will have insight, that we will have a life that brings us um, more and more happiness. It's actually inevitable. So uh, I'm just going to go through them, but I'm not going to go one, two, three and speak about each one. Um, I have done that. In fact, I did that in China recently, and I found it very boring. I don't know how the people in the retreat felt, but um, I'm going to do it a little differently tonight. But just so that you know, they they are divided in this way. The first foundation is um, sila, which is our ethical living, um, virtue, goodness. And traditionally in the Asian cultures that these practices emerged from, this was really the foundation that you had to learn. You had to study generosity. You had to study and really absorb all the teachings of the precepts, um, that Christiana went through on the first night, you had to really be uh, very well averse in this foundation of the practice. You can just jump into meditating um, the way we Westerners all did, which might account for some of the uh, more egregious mistakes that we made, but um, I don't know. They probably, they're humans, they probably make those everywhere. Uh, so, that, But this first one, it has the categories of wise speech, it was a really easy one to do here in retreat. Um, <laughs> unless you count the self-talk and the quality of that, to look at that. Um, wise behavior, also a lot easier on retreat than when we go home. Um, and wise livelihood, you know, the way that we work and hope that our livelihood isn't really any... Any livelihood can be... Um, a wise livelihood. And I'm using, I'm translating the word sama, which is often translated as right, right speech, right behavior, right livelihood. Um, you could translate it as skillful, you know, being skillful in your speech, your actions, and the kind of work you do, um, or wise. And wise livelihood can be anything that isn't hurting ourselves or other people, at least not um, in any way we know, and that doesn't throw us into so much moral distress that we're, you know, up at night thinking, thinking, thinking. Um, so the sila piece, and it really encompasses these three areas, which have to do much more with what we do when we stand up and get off the cushion and head home than, um, than in retreat. And then the second pillar uh, samadhi or jhana is about our meditation practice. And 
it's the, the two steps um, there are mindfulness and concentration, the two things that you've been practicing this whole time. Um, and the third one is um, wisdom, prajna, panya, um, panya in Pali, prajna in Sanskrit. And that, that's about wise viewer understanding, wise thinking or intention, the different translations, and wise effort. And of course, um, they all, they just interweave and um, talk a little bit about each one. So for sila, what we do when we establish ourselves in sila is basically in goodness. And that's the gift, the gift that we give to ourselves and to others when we do that. It's called the gift of fearlessness that we don't have to be afraid of ourselves and we don't have to be someone that other people would be afraid of. And here you can really feel it expressed in the way that um, the deer and the turkeys... Actually, I haven't seen the turkeys. Maybe they're not here yet. Um, Did you see turkeys? Okay. I've been so resting and I've really missed a lot, including turkeys. Um, But... I think the turkeys and the deer, they know they don't have to be afraid of us. You know, they don't like run when they see us. The deer will, and and the beauty of that is that they let us come close enough to, to see them and know them better than we would ever get to outside of here where humans are to be um, feared. They might hurt you. I think that the, um, the lizards and the frogs are not quite so sure about us. You might have noticed that, but I think that has to do more with the way they are wired than with our intentions toward them. Um, because when animals like, like each other, when we know that we're safe and can be trusted, right? We can get closer, um, to each other. And the other great thing about this pillar is that when there's no when we aren't doing, you know, when we aren't up to no good, either, well, I won't give examples of that. We don't need examples. <laughs> we have plenty of examples. When we aren't up to no good, um, when we're not, then we encounter um, what's called in the text the bliss of blamelessness. Uh, I love that phrase. And there's a joy and lightness in our being. It's just the freedom from guilt and regret and remorse and, um, yeah, having to ask for forgiveness and all those things. And then when there's no regret or remorse in the mind, um, our thinking gets more skillful. It gets wiser. It gets, you know, we we begin to be able to do um, what the Buddha actually instructed us to do. He said, contemplate your sila. Think of good things you have done, especially if you're in a dejected or low energy or self-loathing moment. I hope you aren't having those, but sometimes we do. And he said, think of just something, something maybe little that you did, something nice that you did. Um, I mean, it doesn't have to be that you dedicated your entire life to being the bodhisattva that Jack talked about last night, but 
um, he gave me a brief synopsis of his talk, which it was only two paragraphs, so I know I missed a lot. Um, I'm sure it was really beautiful. Uh, But just to begin to cultivate that sense of lightness that comes when we imagine and remember something kind that we did, um, something caring. And to focus on that, it doesn't mean that we didn't do unwholesome things, unkind things in the past, because we all have, every one of us. I remember once in retreat going, I had a meeting with Joseph Goldstein, and I was just filled with self-righteousness about something horrible. It was awful that somebody had done. And I was just like, blah, right? Telling the whole story. And I remember he just listened. And then he sat back in his Joseph way and he said, people do things. (laughs) I thought, oh, (laughs) yeah, that's true. (laughs) Yeah, we all do, don't we? Um, People do things. And... uh, You know, but the minute that we actually commit ourselves to do things that are a little bit wiser, once we take that step um, of wise intention or skillful thinking, um, once we commit ourselves to that, our life just gets better. It just does. And, um, you know, we... (laughs) Sometimes it's called intention, sometimes it's called vows, sometimes it's called dedication. These are very beautiful words. But um, just to remember that we can set our course in a good direction. And once we've done that, we can, we can really say that we're established in sila. Um, we are. And I, you know, even though in the past we may not have been so firmly established in our sila, We can forgive ourselves for that. We have the strength to do that. And then we can begin to appreciate this capacity for pure-heartedness that we all have. Um, I read uh, an article in the paper, and in it the columnist was talking about how, it was really an article about how to have difficult conversations with people who to us seem like fanatics, right? Because they are very passionate about what we don't believe in. And he was talking about listening and listening compassionately and how often when we can listen compassionately, uh, somebody might soften a little bit. And the example that he gave is, he said, you know, being a columnist in the newspaper, you get a lot of um, attacking kinds of letters. And he said, whenever he writes back uh, a letter that's understanding, and kind, 90% of the time, the person will write back a completely transformed letter. You know, often apologizing or making some good point. Or So we have, all of us, that capacity for pure-heartedness, and this is the foundation for all the other areas of training. The next one, samadhi, um, is made up of, yes, the mindfulness and concentration, um, the being with our breath, the being with our footsteps, um, remembering that we really have a lifelong companion in our breath, 
somebody was talking to me about being lonesome and really the only time that we need to feel lonesome or that we really all do, I think, is when we get carried away by currents of thinking and especially rapid currents of thinking because then we're encapsulated in our thought world and it's lonely in there. And you know you've all had some moment of release from that, some moment of stillness when you're with the ebb and the flow of the breath and the footsteps, a little bit mindful about yourself, walking and eating and serving food and falling asleep, then we have this possibility of intimate connection with our bodies, with our senses, with our being. And when we are intimately connected to our own being, we get a sense for each other too. One person who had talked to me at the beginning of the retreat about finding it really difficult not to be connecting with people, walking around and being so silent. And he said, I just wish I could get to know everybody. And and then I met with him today and he talked about how wonderful it was. <laughs> and it's always the harder they fall, right? It's always the people who are the most uncomfortable in the silence at the beginning, who love it the most at the end. But he was just talking about being able to sense Um, people's quality of presence and how lovely that was. And somebody else, she was talking about just feeling um, like these sort of waves of sadness running through people's hearts or, or, you know, streams of anger running through people's hearts and then joy. And then just, I think we just get very, when we're intimate with ourselves, we can be receptive and intimate in a different way with each other. And this, this willingness to be with ourselves and get that close to experience, to our experience, um, it, it doesn't just connect us to each other, it connects us to this moving, flowing um, energy of life itself. And, and we use mindfulness, it just um, helps us see the ingredients at hand Because it's so hard to trust that the ingredients at hand, you know, this body, this mind, uh, this place, wherever we are, are all we need to wake up. And so mindfulness helps us notice what's here so that we can start to gather and bring back all these scattered um, kind of fragmented bits of ourselves and our experience. And as we bring them into awareness, and as we bring them back um, home to the heart and to more wholeness, uh, these bits and pieces of our life experience and ourself begin to kind of coalesce and, and just settle down and peacefully coexist. And we begin to see we can actually have love and we can have aversion. We can have liking and dislike they can peacefully coexist in the same heart. There doesn't have to be any conflict. So mindfulness knows how to see and just let things be um, with great tenderness and the caring and compassion that Jack talked about last night. And it, this, this samadhi, this gathering in of our... Um, experience the collecting and stabilizing 
of our attention, it's almost like a kind of love tribute to mindfulness, really, because we, we love mindfulness. It does this for us. We can do this. And, and there's nothing that's too weird or scary or outrageous or um, sad or tragic or upsetting to, I mean, mindfulness can go anywhere. It can go anywhere. And it's, I think of it like, um, like a loving grandparent, just unflappable, seeing it all, still smiling. And, you know, nothing kids can do surprises a seasoned grandparent. Uh, maybe a parent, but not a grandparent. And they just accept the kids the way they are, which is why grandparents are so important. Um, I only had one. I had a grandmother. And I didn't see her very often. I don't think she was very accepting, but because I loved to suck my thumb, and I managed to continue to do it until I was about 12. But when she... Um, and I was so happy when I went to college and went into the library and there was a woman there reading and sucking her thumb. <laughs> we actually became friends. <laughs> Sally Donaldson was her name. I'll never forget Sally. Oh, I was so happy to see her. And then I tried again because I thought, wow, you know, if Sally could do it. Um, but it didn't work anymore. Um, it just didn't work anymore. It had had a callus, I guess, that made it better, but it was gone. But my grandmother would hold my hand that sucked, the hand of the thumb I liked to suck when we were walking, which I found very irritating. Um, so I'm not that kind of grandparent. Um, I'm really very permissive grandparent. And my granddaughter, Allie, she told her parents, obviously she's, she was very young at the time. She's got her driver's license now, but at this time she was little. And she announced to her parents, Nini, which is what they call me, Nini loves everything about me, even my poo-poo. <laughs> and I thought, what a thing, right? To feel someone loves you that much. <clears throat> I know, you might wonder how we got to that, but... Um, but I did. I used to praise them. Um, my granddaughter has celiac disease, so there were issues, you know, and so her poops were definitely praiseworthy. Um, so that ability to gather all the parts of ourselves and let them peacefully coexist and settle, it's actually... Um, it allows something to happen that can happen in retreat. And you hear all this talk of anatta and no self. And, but then again, uh, most of us seem to live in a relative world of where we have this self. And um, retreat allows us to fall in love with ourselves. And that might sound odd, but I think many of you probably know what I mean, to just develop to appreciate our own being. We're not falling in love with the self that gets us into trouble. We're falling in love with our own being, the miracle of it. And after decades, really long time, of intensive Zen practice, um, 
I was with my teacher Maureen right before she died. And this was probably about a few days before she went in the hospital. She was only in the hospital for a few days before she died. And she had cancer. And I was over at her house and I was helping straighten up her house. And uh, I asked her, I thought, I might not see her again or maybe once or maybe, you know. And so I thought, this is just the moment to ask her this. And she was upstairs, so I just called, I can't believe it, called upstairs and said, Maureen, you know, um, I have this question after all this practice of your lifetime and all the enlightenment and awakening that you embody, um, what is your heart advice to me? And without missing a beat, without hesitation, she said, live it up. (laughs) I know, I was really surprised. I thought... For this, we sat in hair-raising pain in Zazen, in the Zendo, you know, like, what was that about? Um, (laughs) You've probably asked yourself similar questions during the course of the retreat. But, you know, I came to understand that it really was, it's like that phrase became for me the bridge between the samadhi, the concentration and mindfulness piece, and the wisdom. Because... You know, obviously she wasn't saying, oh, forget about the Dharma and forget about practice, eat, drink, be merry. Um, Maybe she was saying a little bit of that, but she was not about forget about the Dharma, maybe eat, drink, and be merry. But really what she was saying, um, I think, was just enjoy each moment and savor each moment and be present with it um, completely, completely. And don't And that way, of course, we will have really lived it up. I don't think she was talking about five-star hotels somehow, Um, but I'm sure she wouldn't have minded those either. So the next, the last foundation is wisdom, the third foundation. And, um, And wisdom is made up of this wise view or understanding Um, wise intention, and wise effort. Skillful effort, this is the tricky thing because nobody can tell you what it is for you. It's so personal for each one of us. Um, As was talked about earlier in the week, and Christiana mentioned this morning the balance um, between, you know, the kinds of effort that we're making. Um, Do we need more energy? Do we need less energy? And how do we take care of ourselves and make our utmost effort? Uh, what does that mean to do that? Um, one time I was visiting my teacher, Koben, Koben Chino Otagawa, Japanese Soto Zen, wonderful uh, Zen teacher, who came to the United States. Um, Suzuki Roshi of the San Francisco Zen Center invited him to come and start uh, the first monastery, Zen monastery, um, Tassahara, which he did. And Coben then, at a certain time in his life, he was living in Taos, New Mexico, um, in a house somebody 
had given him to live in. And so a bunch of us were visiting and he was very hospitable and he would make, uh, he would cook for us and he made lunch and we all set the table. I mean, we all helped, but we all set the table. It was a big, long table. There were probably about, I don't know, 12 or 15 of us at lunch. And, um, you know, he sat at the table and we started eating. And then at a certain point we noticed um, Coben had disappeared. And so we were, you know, hanging out and talking and waiting and waiting. And we were there to see Coben after all. And waiting and waiting and, you know, he didn't come back. And uh, we wondered, hmm, maybe somebody should knock on his door. We knocked on the door. No answer. Uh, then, you know, anxiety, a little concern starts to creep in. Like, what if something happened? And nobody wanted to open the door to his room, though, and look. And, um, but I was usually the forward one. So I thought, okay. So I opened the door to his room and said, Coben, Coben? And it was empty. So I thought, all right, either he's attained the rainbow body or he went out the window. And sure enough, his window was open and he had escaped out the window um, from our lunch. (laughs) I think that was the first time I really understood that teachers need to take care of themselves. (laughs) And he was too polite and kind to tell us that it was just too much for him. So he... You know, we made this lovely lunch and everything, and he sat down with us, and then he politely excused himself (laughs) and disappeared. Um, So, you know, uh, I don't necessarily recommend this is the wisest way to take care of yourself, but listen, we do what we can, right? This is what what he did. And... uh, Actually, I'll tell you the rest of that story. So, you know, people went their separate ways and and disappeared for the afternoon. But I, having come a long way and really wanting, I must have had some burning question that I wanted to talk to Coben about that day. It's hard to believe, but I must have to justify what I then did, which was um, (laughs) to go look for him up the mountain. And I knew this little place where he had made like a kind of lean-to out of branches because I had seen it walking, hiking. And um, I thought, well, maybe he's up there in his (laughs) lean-to. This is, of course, the teacher's nightmare, right? That student (laughs) comes and finds them in their little hideout. Um, But for some reason, I wasn't really thinking about him, right? (laughs) I was thinking about my question that I wanted to talk to him about. So I went up the mountain, and sure enough, under the branches in his little lean-to, he had made a fire out of um, some pine cones and pine needles, and he was sitting there. (laughs) This is so embarrassing. He was quietly smoking a cigarette, you know, taking a break from being (laughs) the Zen master. Um, and then I, you know, 
crunch, 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 and then, <laughs> you know, he could certainly hear me coming. Um, and to his credit, he didn't run away. I mean, I probably would have chased him if he had. That's just so embarrassing. <laughs> but he sat there, and, the, okay, this is the most embarrassing part. And then I felt it was... Um, somehow my sila or my duty to tell him that um, he shouldn't be smoking. (laughs) Okay, I was a lot younger, okay, a lot younger when this happened. Not to mention the fact that we all smoked cigarettes. Um, So I said that about his smoking, something probably like, you know, I thought you stopped or something (laughs) subtle like that. And he took a deep drag of his cigarette. You know, just... And then he exhaled into the smoke from his little fire and said, inside and outside become one. So that is Zen cool, you guys. Because... It's wisdom when there's nothing uh, bothering us and we're mindful, inside and outside become one, don't they? I'm just looking at you, there's nothing else. There's you in here (laughs) and there's you. Uh, Inside and outside aren't different. That's why they say uh, the content of samadhi is wisdom. Because when we're still and concentrated in those moments, um, what appears is not something different going on inside from whatever appears either in our consciousness externally, internally. There's just this, just this thing. And whatever this is, we call it suchness. There's just the isness of it. Uh, nothing extra, nothing taken away, nothing add, has to be added on. So uh, this is wisdom that Coben manifested when he had every right to be exasperated and um, maybe a little bit impatient or something, but he wasn't. So wisdom is caring for ourselves. It's also knowing when we can let ourselves be and let ourselves go. I think the question of caring for myself is a very poignant one sometimes because as a woman, I'm conditioned, and I know men are conditioned too, but, you know, towards strength and maybe denying their needs, but for me, the form that it's taken just from millennia of conditioning is um, to either defer my needs or hide them or um, give whatever energy, power, strength I have away to another. Um, that feels like the right thing to do. And sometimes it is, often it is, um, when we have it to give. It is. And um, well, I'll share another wisdom experience with you. 
because uh, it came to mind, I was reminded of it talking to somebody today, uh, one of you. And it was my first real experience of no self, of anatta, which is a confusing thing to talk about, but not to experience. It's very clear. And it was when I, when I was, I had just turned 22 and I was having my baby. Um, I'd never had a baby before. I didn't really know much about childbirth because in those days we didn't have all the focus on the birth experience and the mindful birth and education about birth. And um, so I really didn't know very much. And I knew the anatomy, that plastic cross-section in the doctor's office. That was, I just didn't know much about birth. And so at the beginning, when my um, <clears throat> labor started, it also started very intensely because in those days, if your doctor wanted to go on his golf vacation, but he wanted to be there for your birth, he would just induce your labor. And I didn't even know that that was a hard way to go into labor because that was my only experience. So it starts very intensely. And I remember that moment of just looking down and you can see your uterus contract, but you aren't doing it. It is so creepy. And it was just such an experience of not me, not me doing this. Just like, what is this? I... I mean, there are other experiences of this that you could have. This was just the experience that I had. And then, of course, the whole experience of childbirth because I did not know what to do. If I had had to run that birth, that baby would still be in there. Um, (laughs) Honestly, I would never have known what to do. But my body knew what to do. And in the course of doing what my body knew how to do, I really had some very powerful opening to another experience of not the annihilation of this self or me, but the connection to all life and the realization that all life, I mean, this great chain of being came through a female body, came out of a vagina. Oh my God. You know, it's hard to grok that we all arrived this way. And um, I have talked about this before. You may have even heard it. It's because I really can't get over it. Um, Either the power of the female body, we say the feminine, but oh my gosh, it's feminine is a very pretty, sweet word. And it's not really pretty and sweet. It's intense and raw experience, but it's the experience of being born or giving birth. Um, one person told me that um, her mother used to take her on retreats um, when she was little in a different country and her mother explained the three you know how we ring the bell three times um, and her mother explained it that means being born living and dying because that's what happens to everything can you imagine that was so simple that teaching And so profound. Um, So the wisdom to go beyond what we have always thought we are, to go beyond that and to 
situate or see ourselves as belonging to something so much bigger, this great chain of being that, you know, endless before us, endless after us. And here we are just on the pinnacle of this moment, this particular moment in all eternity and all life. Um, So wisdom, wisdom is wise understanding, wise thinking, wise effort, all these things entwined in the experiences that I'm, that I'm sharing with you. Um, and I said before that it's inevitable if you practice these eight steps that your life will get happier. And it's, it's really true. You know, you can start anywhere in them. As I said, it's not linear. They're really, really more of a circle. Um, or a cycle, a cycle of goodness and clarity um, instead of a cycle of suffering and what we call a vicious cycle. Uh, and for you here in the retreat, your love of this practice, it's already so strong and really so developed in you. Um, you wouldn't be here. You couldn't bear to be here otherwise, honestly. It, it would be too hard. It's so, it has already arisen so strongly and powerfully in you that it brought you here, right? You were able to get here, clear the way. And sometimes that takes enormous effort, clear the way to get here. And um, this, this, I won't even say love of the practice, because sometimes it's love-hate, right? But um, being drawn to the practice, almost like magnetized, being drawn, this being called to the practice, um, it will carry you through all the circumstances of your life, for sure, no matter what comes to you in this life, it will. I remember um, after some breakup, I've had many of them, um, I couldn't sleep and I was talking to Coben about how I would just wake up so early and oh, when I think of the things that I thought it was appropriate to share with my teacher in those days. But anyway, um, yes, I was complaining about not sleeping. And he said, oh, when you wake up, that's the Dharma calling you. Okay, that really helped because I would get up and practice. And before then, I would just wish I was asleep. Um, so the love of the practice, or at least your, um, I don't know, your attraction, (laughs) your inevitable attraction to the practice, it's very strong, it's very deep, and it'll, it'll help you. And, um, we're having this beautiful, now clear California weather, and I hope you let it just draw you outside to sit still and Appreciate the song of the crickets to walk in the little bit of starlight that we have. Um, And to let that stillness of loving awareness of our sila, samadhi, and prajna, to let it surround all the planning and dreaming and wondering that's going on as as you come over the top of the Ferris wheel, right, toward 
the end of the retreat. Of course that's all going on. Um, It's just the natural process. But we can sit still right in the midst of it. There's an image of Maitreya Buddha, who is said to be the Buddha of the future. And Maitreya is depicted often as sitting, um, like sitting in a chair with the leg, like sort of like that, and then the elbow on the knee, and sort of in this kind of pose. It's like a pose of, hmm, what will the future bring? It's like this pose of kind of wondering. So right now you are all the Maitreya Buddha, right? The Buddha of the future. Wondering, what will your life be after this? Um, So I want to encourage you to just stay here and let the quiet surround all that wondering and let them peacefully coexist. And if you really feel like you just tipping way forward and it's hard to pull back, you can literally sit back. You can literally move your body back, even if it's just like an inch or a half an inch. And just that sitting back a little can help you return to a state of receptivity and more patience with the unfolding of things. And so what we do when we let ourselves get quiet and feel the earth and the presence of loving awareness within us, uh, what we do from that place is usually skillful and wise. And we can trust that our actions, our energy, our vibes, you know, uh, that the effect we have on other people, uh, that it'll come from this deep wisdom of your loving presence. And that is a beautiful thing. And it's part of trusting the practice and trusting yourself. Coburn used to say he would take all these eight steps to happiness and just roll them into one word. And he'd say, this is the most important word. This is the most important thing in your practice. Trust. So we've made ourselves more trustworthy through this retreat process and through our practice of the Dharma. Trustworthy to be friends with ourselves and with our world and with each other. I want to just thank you for your listening and um, for your practice, for your retreat that you've done. Somehow you managed to do it just fine without me. Um, We discover... What my mom used to always say, what? The graveyards are filled with indispensable people. Um, We imagine that, right, without us, something really just might not be the same, but it was perfect. And I get to be here with you here and now and feeling better. And I'm really happy for that. So thank you, everybody. And we take a moment to sit together now.
born, living, and dying. Enjoy your walking in the stillness of cricket songs. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.